The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Kenneth Kukie, senior editor, and on the menu this week, the rise of India's guru entrepreneurs. Financing divorce becomes big business. And how to become an astronaut. But first, the future of computing was our cover line this week. Gordon Moore, a co-founder of Intel, in the 1960s made a prediction about how the power of computing increased, an idea that has enjoyed a remarkable longevity. But as our cover story explained, we are entering into a new era of computational power. According to his rule of thumb, known as Moore's Law, processing power doubles roughly every two years as smaller transistors are packed ever more tightly onto silicon wafers, boosting performance and reducing costs. And they are now tightly packed into our everyday lives. Today, three billion people carry smartphones in their pockets. Each one is more powerful than a room-sized supercomputer from the 1980s. And those computers couldn't even play economists' podcasts. Moore's Law has become a cultural trope. People inside and outside Silicon Valley expect technology to get better every year. Yet, as we report in our Technology Quarterly this week, the end of Moore's Law is nigh. Making transistors smaller no longer guarantees that they will be cheaper or faster. Chips will still get better, but at a slower pace. Number crunching power is now doubling only every 2.5 years, says Intel. Hmm, only every two and a half years. So what will this post-Moore's Law era look like? Its demise will make the rate of technological progress less predictable. There are likely to be bumps in the road as new performance-enhancing technologies arrive in fits and starts. Panic not, dear listener. You shouldn't notice too much of a difference. Given that most people judge their computing devices on the availability of capabilities and features rather than processing speed, it may not feel like much of a slowdown to consumers. Nobody wants to feel like they're missing out and everyone wants to reap the benefits of success. That has not quite been the case for the people of Equatorial Guinea, as a piece in our Middle East and Africa section explained. While the country's rulers have been basking in riches, the same cannot be said for their fellow countrymen. Teodoro Obiang, the president of Equatorial Guinea, and Teodorin, the most influential of his 42 recognised children, have expensive tastes. Tastes to be savoured, but apparently not shared. While most of his citizens live on less than $2 a day, the older Mr Obiang once shelled out $55 million for a Boeing 737 with gold-plated lavatory fittings. The Obiang family owes such lavish amenities to once-buoyant oil prices propping up the country. According to the IMF, its GDP expanded by an average of almost 40% per year between 1996 and 2006. Though not much of the wealth trickled its way down the ranks. Though its GDP per head is the highest in Africa, over three quarters of its population lives below the World Bank's poverty line. Recent times have been less favourable for members of the Klan. In 2014, the United States Department of Justice forced Teodorin Obiang to sell off a Ferrari, his Los Angeles abode, and six life-size Michael Jackson statues in a money-laundering settlement. A touch of karma, perhaps. A blend of religion and finance appeared in the pages of our Asia section this week. An article highlighted the ascendance of certain prominent religious figureheads in India, 
a country in which piety and profit seem to be intertwining neatly in the form of spiritual entrepreneurs. They are seeking corporate-style synergies between religious messaging, personal celebrity, commercial success and political influence. And what they have sought, they have indeed found. An early mover is Ram Dev, a teacher of yoga, whose television lessons are credited with popularising the discipline among India's fast-growing middle class. Ten years ago, he launched a range of Ayurvedic drugs and beauty products. But why should the holy work end there? More recently, Ramdev's brands have expanded aggressively into foods and detergents, competing directly with big multinationals. When India last year slapped a ban on instant noodles produced by Nestle, a global food giant, after a health inspection raised alarms, Ramdev quickly stepped in with a version of his own. Blessed be the bowl graced with such a noodle. From the unconventional interpretations of spirituality, we turn now to a crumbling convention in the realm of commerciality. If you're used to trying on clothes in a shop and taking them home, you may soon be leaving feeling a little empty-handed. An article in our business section explained why some firms are opening shops with no stock. Bricks and mortar stores are in the throes of an identity crisis. And out of such crises, new ways of working are often born. Among the most interesting models to emerge, however, are chains such as Bonobos, whose outlets have no stock to sell. A shop without stock? Whatever next. The idea is to divorce the purchase of a product from its distribution. Until recently, this business model was largely restricted to sellers of big, non-portable things like furniture. You wouldn't drag home an armoire that took your fancy. Clothing retailers are seeing the downsides of conventional shops too. If a retailer stores and sells goods in the same place, it must lease space, often in an expensive central location, for the storeroom as well as the shop floor. Staff may be needed to unpack deliveries overnight, which raises costs further. Employees spend much of the day restocking shelves, which means less attention paid to customers. So some shops are letting the stock go and suggesting customers buy online. We will have to see if the split from tradition will be profitable or costly. For marital divorces, sadly, it is usually the latter. But as an article in our finance section explored, as relationships wither, the business for lending people money to divorce is blossoming. Novitas Loans, a British firm, is currently lending to 1,500 would-be divorcees, most are women, at 18% annual interest. The loans are intended to cover legal fees. Applicants typically expect to win assets worth three times their borrowing. So it's a viable business. Unless, of course, the flame is rekindled. The big risk for divorce funders is that a couple might get back together. When that happens, assets are not sold and a borrower may not be able to pay back the lender. So some firms are picky about who they get into bed with. Novitas therefore prefers to fund cases that have been grinding through court long enough to make reconciliation unlikely. Leaving such nuptial negativity, we flip through our science section where collaboration is the word of the moment. Africa is a petri dish for scientific research, yet many of the continent's scientists are unaware of the work of their peers. But as an article reported, the next Einstein Forum being held this week in Dakar, Senegal, aims to change that. Next Einstein, the brainchild of Thierry Zomahoun, 
a Beninois administrator, is an attempt to scale up African science. At the moment, most African scientists work either in isolation or abroad. They do not know one another and are invisible to prospective colleagues. Next Einstein is an attempt to overcome this. The forum has grown out of the African Institute for Mathematical Sciences, or AIMS, of which Mr Zomahoun is president. AIMS is a graduate school with branches in Cameroon, Ghana, Tanzania and South Africa, as well as in Senegal. These branches are to be the cradles of scientific endeavour. The Senegalese campus, built on a beachfront an hour's drive south of Dakar, is a place where up to 80 graduate students, who pay no fees for the privilege, can sit for a year at the feet of visiting academics from Africa and elsewhere. The search for genius is merely a numbers game, and this project may shorten the odds. As Mr Zomahoun observes, 40% of the world's children are African. Statistically, therefore, the chances that the next Einstein will come from Africa are good. But what about the odds of becoming an astronaut? With so many children sharing the same space-age dream, they always have been slim. But as a box in our United States section reported, this year the competition is astronomical. Over 18,300 people have applied to join NASA's next astronaut class, over double the previous record in 1978 and almost three times the number that applied for the most recent class in 2012. As if they didn't have enough demand already, NASA has been training itself in the art of marketing. To coax more women to apply, a group of female NASA astronauts answered questions for Glamour magazine's website. And in case you didn't know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to apply. The only requirements are a bachelor's degree in science, technology, engineering or maths, three or more years of related work experience or study, or 1,000 hours as a jet pilot, which it is easy to imagine might come in handy. Though with such high demand, you may need a little edge to get ahead. It may not be a requirement, but for long flights in tight quarters, a sense of humour surely helps too. Where do I sign up? One small step for mankind. One great leap for podcasting history. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and that was our tasting menu. If you're hungry for a little more, you can find all of our stories on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.